Model makers, if you're like me, you're constantly looking for supplies and kits, right? My go-to source for all the essentials is the title sponsor of the Sprue Cutters Union podcast, Hobby World USA. Hobby World USA carries kits, tools, books, and paint brands from Abtilong 502 to Zero. <laughs> See what I did there with the whole A to Z thing? Hobby World is also one of only two suppliers in the United States to carry my personal favorite paint, MRP. And if you're looking for something that's not in their inventory, there's a good chance the owner, Matt Bowl, can find it for you. Matt is one of us. He's a model maker and he participates in the community on a regular basis and is always willing to answer questions. I should also note that while he's a great source for those of us in the United States and Canada, he will also ship worldwide. So, get on over to HobbyWorldUSA.com. That's HobbyWorld-USA.com and check them out for all your model making needs. The following podcast may contain spicy adult language, sensitive topics, and dangerous ideas. If you're delicate and easily offended, you may want to tune in elsewhere. Also, maybe just take a nap. You're also more than welcome to complain directly to the management via email. If it's entertaining enough, we might even read it on the podcast and mock you mercilessly. If outrage continues for more than four hours, please consult a physician. What's up, gangsters, and welcome to the first episode of the Sprue Cutters Union podcast. <laughs> yes, hopefully, hopefully the yays will continue. Um, I my name is Will Pattison, and I am joined here by my friend Chris Meddings, who I want to make it clear right now is responsible for this mess. He's he wrote the boss. This. <laughs> He's the boss. And this is his brainchild, um, and <laughs> and our friend and our friend Tracy Hancock, and yeah, we have no idea what we're doing, uh, but we're gonna figure it out, and we're gonna take you folks along for the ride. What do you think, guys? I think we're off to a good start. I'm happy with uh, you know we've got a couple of interviews under our belt. Right. I'm happy with how those are coming out. Uh, and I'm more excited about doing this than I thought I would be. And I'd like to thank Chris for inviting me along. Absolutely. I just wanted a good team. I think we've got a, a good team. And I hope uh, hope people listening are going to enjoy it as much as I do. I think so. I think so. I think we've we've figured out that we've got a pretty good little dynamic going on between the three of us. But, you know, these folks listening, they don't give a shit about that. They want to know why we're here and why they should listen to us. So I guess for this first episode, we do have an interview, uh, and that's going to be a major part of our content going forward. Uh, we are trying to score really interesting guests, actually, coming up here in a little bit. Our first guest is going to be the one and only Matt McDougall of Dukes Models fame. We're going to get into that in a little bit, but first, we're going to kind of interview each other so you guys can figure out you know, what the heck we're doing here uncomfortable pause (laughs) (laughs) all right so who's going first we'll just start with you mr hancock who the fuck are you and why are you here uh i'm here at the request of his majesty uh king meddings i am uh old punk rock modeling kid 
about 52 years old. I live in Durham, North Carolina here in the States. Uh, during the day and the evenings, I own a pretty cool little pizzeria bar place called Hutchins Garage, which is located in an old car dealership garage. And the little bit of spare time that I have, I build models. I primarily build armor models, and I do have quite a good stash and a slow build rate for 172nd scale civil aircraft from between the wars, primarily European. Things that no one has heard of <laughs> uh, and kits that need to be uh, cursed into submission uh, for the most part. That's, yeah, that's about it. Uh, last thing I finished was a conversion of the Tamiya Jagdpanzer 38 Hetzer to an initial build, um, one of the first 20 built that were sabotaged at the factory by the factory foreman, used primarily for training purposes until the Prague uprising, and then uh, sabotage took place on the gun mantlet. So this thing was... Uh, rearmed with a more uh, a more late model uh, mantlet from the Jagdpanzer production line, and fitted with Osketten, the wider uh, tracks that you see a lot of times on Panzer IVs and things like that. And uh, it was put into combat the Prague uprising, and it was knocked out by a Panzerfaust uh, wielded by a Czech policeman. And I was lucky enough to find about. About 20 different photos of this thing. Um, so I did my research and my due diligence and a little bit of backdating to the Tamiya kit. And that should be on its way to being published once I finish writing up the article. Prior to that, I built Ming's awesome uh, Leopard 2A4. Put it in a little diorama and it should be coming out in the next issue of uh, Military Modelcraft International. Nice, nice. I don't know shit about tanks, uh, and I have no idea what half of what you just said even means. <laughs> but, but I saw the pimpin' wagon. You posted in uh, SMCG and a couple of other places, and I, I was like, okay, this this Tracy guy's legit. I feel like you got a little bit of Rinaldi going on in there. I mean, I, I dude, your your uh, execution of your weathering, I gave it a like a at least a nine out of ten authenticity score. I was well impressed. Uh, I had, I, you know, I hadn't seen a lot of your work before because you know uh, you, you and I didn't even know each other until Chris introduced us. Uh, I'm sure much to your chagrin. <laughs> well, as Chris, as Chris can attest, I'm the world's slowest modeler as well. No, no, you haven't met me yet. Wait till I talk. But. You're kind of busy with that bar, right? Yeah, I've got a I've got a day job, um, but I do find modeling so absolutely relaxing. It's been a hobby that I've had since kid, and then obviously girls distract you and whatnot. But yeah, you mentioned uh, Mike Rinaldi early on. Uh, really big fan of, of Mike's. And I remember um, one of his first couple of articles, he mentioned using a particular Vallejo paint. And at the time, the only place you could get it was uh, at Mission Models out in California. So I called up before I placed my order and I thought, I said, hey, I'm, I'm looking for this particular paint, this particular shade. You don't have it listed online. Um, and the guy was like, well, we have this, which is very similar. And I said, well, I'm, I'm following a build by Mike Rinaldi, 
and I'm trying to match what he did. And the guy on the other end of the phone said, well, I am Mike Rinaldi. <laughs> and I can tell you that this paint works. This is just as good. That's great. That's <laughs> and great. That, that started a friendship with us. And, uh, and I keep in contact with him uh, less frequently uh, over the past COVID year than I should. Sorry, Mike. But, you know, any, anytime I would run into problems, I'd send some photos his way and, you know, he'd steer me along the right direction. And he and I have had so many long conversations about, oh, you know, everything he talks about, the layering and, and just I, all of my weathering is done with oil. The the piece that you're talking about, the, the Panzer, mm -hmm. I painted the initial camouflage colors with airbrush. But every bit of the weathering was done with oil paints. Nice, nice. Well, that's good to know that you've got an inside with him because then when we want to get him on here, you're going to be the guy, right? Yeah, I'll reach out. I got no problem. Yeah, absolutely. I would love it if we can get him on here. I think it'd be great. I mean, obviously, he's already been on uh, the uh, Plastic Posse podcast and did a great job over there. But, yeah, we want to dig into his brain even deeper because that's going to kind of be our thing. Uh, but and he is a great guy. I know when, you know, I, I have not had nearly as much contact with him as you have, but a few years ago when I was trying to figure out hairspray chipping, he was really good with me via email and just really direct. He's just tell me straight up, nope, you're just not there yet. And then here's what you need to do to, to change it. And it was invaluable for me. So he's, you know, the guy is truly like a national treasure to the modeling community. Yeah, he's a real gentleman, and uh, but he, he's also a genuinely good instructor. Yes. You know, he's we've all had uh, people that have taught us things over the years, and you know the hardest hardest thing to hear is criticism, but it's also the the most pertinent. And you know, I remember sending him a photo of a Type ninety seven Chiha that I did, and and he went in in Photoshop and circled all the areas that were great. And then he circled a few, and he was like, "Okay, you need you need to address this. This is this is a bit too much." And that kind of honest feedback really kind of keeps you moving forward. You know? Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm a I'm a huge believer in the idea that there's an intersection between aesthetics and realism, and that he is like for me, he's found that intersection in my favorite way. I mean, like I look at his stuff and I'm and I just feel like it's it is super authentic. The realism is high. Every bit of it is plausible and you can identify every little story. You know, the layers are separate. You can see each technique. But, you know, real just because something's realistic doesn't mean it looks cool. Right. I, and he's somehow figured out that point. And I, I want to know how he did that. But Tracy also. You know, most guys are either painting and weathering guys or building guys. Well, I say most guys. A lot of guys are. You find people are either one thing or another. They're really good at building or they're really good at painting and weathering. But you put as much detail, uh, effort into the detail of your builds as you do into the paint and finish. And what's your kind of inspiration for, um, for detailing and accuracy? I feel like what I try to do is push myself both with my building and my finishing because they're two separate things to me. I tend to have a build going at the same time that I'm finishing something else so I can bounce back and forth depending on what my mood is. But because I have a limited amount of time, and this seems kind of contrary, if I had a limited amount of time, I should just be plowing through and, and doing the, the, the quickest thing with the best result. But I'm also trying to push my skill level, and I blame uh, a lot of my scratch-building 
aspirations on the books that Chris has put out, Chris's work, yeah. uh, David Parker's work. There's a, a Canadian modeler named Thomas Morgan who is just phenomenal. And I've known him for at least 20 years back when he was um, scratch building and improving 148 scale World War One aircraft when nobody else was doing anything. There was no wing nut wings or anything like that. And he's moved over into armor and he's an absolutely really dedicated to reproducing what he sees in his reference. He's a really thorough researcher and his craftsmanship is really fantastic. And you can't help but see somebody working on something like that and look at yours sitting on the bench and, and not want to push it to the next level a little bit. I also don't like photo etch. So I try my best to see what I can make with plastic rather than photo etch. Um, in some cases it works, some cases it doesn't, but that's kind of where I push myself with my builds. And then the weathering is a completely different sort of challenge and, and a different sort of experience to me. Well, your stuff is dope. And uh, I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, that brand new on the block with the model making podcasting space. But the other podcasts have this thing they do each year called the Musaroo Cup. And, and, and I think the deal is, is that they have somebody who picks a kit and, and each podcast has to build it. And uh, I think one, you know, one of the pr people on the podcast gets to do it each year. So it sounds like you're going to be our guy because you're good. <laughs> well, you got to give me two years advance notice. <laughs> we nominate you. Well, we probably missed this year's. Maybe we can start early on next year's. Unless unless it's scratch building, then it's going to be then it's going to be all about you, Mister Meddings, because you're sure you're, is. you're that guy. Just going back to what you said, Tracy, about being slow and about maybe that should mean you should just sort of rush them out. That's one of my. Uh, pet things when people say they don't have time for a build or they don't have time to do this or that it really depends what you want to get out of modeling i also see a lot of people like throwing up a photo on a facebook group saying oh it took me three days it's like well that's not a boast <laughs> you know <laughs> that's not a good thing but also it, it really depends do you like finishing models or do you just like making models because if you like making models does it matter if it takes you a month or six years because you're just doing what you enjoy doing you might as well do it really well if you're not yeah, about finishing models. Yeah. You might as well do it really well and take your time. It just depends on the outcome you want at the <laughs> other end. Whether you want a lot of models that are okay or one really detailed, really well-finished model. Yeah, I just want something I'm proud of. Absolutely. Well, see, yeah, so I'm curious, how long did Derdinky Fighting Wagon take you? Uh, Derdinky Fighting Wagon, the, the, the Ogpanzer 38, the build didn't take very long at all. Uh, to me, a kit's great. It, it, like every Jagdpanzer 38 on the market, none of them are accurate. They were built by two different factories, BMM and Skoda. There are differences between the two factories that are never taken into account uh, by kit producers. And the research is not really out there. I, it's something I'd love to, to publish something about because I've done so much research on it. So the, the minor bit of conversion that I did didn't take more than a couple of three months. But then I struggled with painting because I was trying to airbrush mission models paint. Mm. And, uh, there's I, a topic. I, yeah, there's a topic. I know there are guys out there. I know David Parker blasts through it. I know Rinaldi uses it. I struggle with that paint. I really do. And I, I don't know whether I've got a bad ingredient if my – mission models thinner has turned it curdles in the cup 
the mixing cup. You know, I, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll mix it and put it in thinner and stir it and it's blended. And then you turn your head to grab a paper towel and come back and it's curdled. So I did try to push through with mission models for that build. And, and eventually the build itself got sidetracked with my determination to try to figure out what I was doing wrong with the paint. So it turned into a lot of experimentation with the paint that wasn't even part of the build that sort of sidetracked it. And then I got it right. Uh, I believe I got the base coat down with mission models. And then I went to Tamiya for the actual camouflage. And then I started working everything in with oils. And then I kind of put it to the side for a while. And I kind of, I didn't have my end game in, in mind. You know, I didn't have the focus and I didn't know where it was going. And I felt like every time I pulled it off the shelf and worked on it, I was just dabbling. And granted, I was probably building up layers and, and you know, working towards that really nicely realized finish that, that I think it has. But I also felt like I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing and when to stop. I played around with a base and a figure. And eventually, after uh, bouncing it off of, of, of a few people, some friends, I determined that the, the vehicle was too unique to be on a base with a figure or anything else that would distract you from the vehicle itself. Like It is it is a seriously unique vehicle. The, the wide track, the Oscatton, there's two tanks, that have, two uh, Hetzers that have been photographed with these. That's it. So it... The fact, uh, you know, its choice of shoe wear makes it unique. <laughs> um, so I, I determined that the, the tank itself was the focus. And once I sort of made that decision, then it was just a matter of, of wrapping it up and, and pushing it forward. So it took me a lot longer than it should have because there were some breaks in between. But my general output for a model from opening the box until the final photos, it's about a year. Well, I'm not surprised at all. And you touched on a bunch of things there that I think we're going to end up looping back around on as, you know, these podcasts, as our as our episodes come out, because we do want to dive deep. You hit on some things that, that I know we're going to get into about, you know, the whys in addition to the whats. And and that one thing was what I was kind of trying to get out of you was that was was the schedule, because I think, you know, like a lot of guys will ask me, you know, or they'll ask in, in scale modelers critique group, you know, what's the secret? I look at guys who are doing really good work and et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and the one key ingredient that I feel like a lot of these guys don't get is that it's just time. I mean, it, 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 it just takes time. Like I was listening to one of the other podcasts recently and, and, uh, I think it was uh, Plastic Model Mojo, and, and he was talking about how he was doing his first bit of weathering on an armored vehicle that he had ever done. And he was like, damn, this takes a long time. And I'm like, yep, it just does. And, and there's no, you know, there's no shortcut. And if you want that kind of result, you got to put in the time. Uh, so that's what I was trying to get out of you there. And it's a, it's a great answer. What about you, Will? What brings you here? <laughs> Chris. Well, we pay him quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> He's yeah, uh, you know, Chris has Chris is persuasive. He's uh, you know he's one of Chris, one of Chris's many talents that I've that I've discovered in the years we've been acquainted is that he is uh, is good at putting things together. And obviously, I mean, he you know does these great books. 
He was the editor uh, uh, for a bit there. Uh, what about a year, right, Chris? Of, hey, 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 uh, we're going to get on to me. Let's talk okay, about you. Well, all right, all right. I'm trying to, trying to, I'm trying to pimp you, but you know, if, if you don't want me, oh, to, believe okay. me, I can do that myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're going to be like all, you know, in, in your usual reserved. I'm British, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to blow myself up mode. So you know, we're going to do it for you. But but Chris just good, is good at, at bringing effective elements together. And which, so like, why me? I, I have no idea because I'm not, you know, I feel like the the, the slow kid uh, on this bus. Uh, I'm, I'm here with two art school graduates. Uh, I'm an engineering school graduate uh, twice over. Um, I, I don't know a damn thing about tanks. You guys are both ridiculously expert with tanks. Uh, Chris is a majorly good scratch builder. I, you know, I, I'm... I'm happy if I can glue two pieces of evergreen together and make them straight. Uh, you know, so I, I, I'm not sure why I'm here, but I, I'm well, actually, I'll just, um, I'll just jump in there. I can tell you why you're both. Well, there's a few reasons you're both here. I like you guys a lot. That's, that's a good start. But also, <laughs> um, I wanted this show to be, uh, to have a little bit of a slightly different flavor to some of the other podcasts. They've all got their own thing, which they do really well. So yes. the number one thing is don't copy what's already good. Right. Because, you Absolutely. know, they already do it. They already do it really well. And the thing I wanted was people that were very honest, that had good, strong opinions, and were fearless in actually expressing them rather than being worried that they have to, like, always be nice and always say boy" and all this kind of stuff. This is not an boy kind of uh, environment. And uh, I know you two are both... Um, you know, you don't really worry about it. You just say what you think. You're not blunt. You're not rude. But at the same time, you're open and you're honest and you're upfront. So both of you, I thought, were, fun, you know, perfect for the uh, for the idea I had in mind. Well, that's what really appealed to me. I mean, that's how that's that's what sold me on it, uh, you know, because I, I think, like you said, the podcast space is is pretty full. And, you know, we're kind of stumbling in like that dinner party guest who shows up an hour late, already wasted. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure. It's like, OK, what are we going to add? But I but I think, you know, Blaster Drunk and antics. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I mean, the on the bench guys are the OGs. Uh, they've been doing it now for I think they said four years and they've done a great job. And if we can get halfway to 100 episodes with half as much credibility, then I'll be pretty stoked about that. Um, you know, Ian and, and Dave and Julian are, are a really good trio and they just, you know, they make it work. I mean, they, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's very effective. The Plastic Posse podcast guys are, are kind of newer on the block, but they're already knocking it out of the park. They're doing a great job with their interviews and they're a super cool bunch of guys. You know, and the rest of the crowd out there is doing pretty well, too. But but I think what Chris sold me on was the idea that this was going to fill a space that wasn't, you know, that was kind of out there on the fringe, the, you know, the the 10 or 20 percent that wasn't really filled yet. Um, sort of the 10 similar. or 20 listeners. The 10 or 20 listeners, right? Exactly. <laughs> Those guys are still available. <laughs> so. You know, and this is the same sort of of, of uh, momentum that got us, you know, that got us to start Scale Modelers Critique Group, because we looked out there at the landscape of Facebook model making groups, and we're like, okay, what's missing? You know, there's lots of good groups, but they all kind of have this thing. It's all attaboys. It's it's all you know. There's just a certain level of conversation and depth that's that's just not there, and. 
we want to we want to do more. So it's not that we think that the other podcasts are failing in any way because they're not. We just want to go further, uh, and we want to you know we want to dig. We want to really get in there, uh, and you'll see that I think with the interview that we're doing with Matt here in a little bit because we you know we we picked his brain for about three hours such that we just split it into two two interviews. And that's going to be kind of a thing that we'll do where if we have an interview that, that we need to split, then so be it. Because our, our bottom line is we want to present you guys with great content. And um, so uh, I think, I think uh, we're, we're off to a pretty good start. Uh, and I think, Chris, you had a great idea. And like Tracy, I'm just stoked to be involved. That's great, but we still don't know about you, Will. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, uh, oh, tell oh, us that. what you model. Let's start with that. <laughs> oh, that. Yeah. Okay. Well, so um, my modeling history goes back a lot further than some people probably think it does. Um, I uh, started building models when I was about eight, I think. And I did until I was probably 13 or 14. Um, you know, the typical, uh, I discovered girls and dirt bikes and was getting my driver's license and all that. But for that eight year, for that for that period of, of time, that that from eight to fourteen, I was I was a scientist. I was into it because I can distinctly remember building my first one and looking at a at the box and looking at the piece of garbage on my table and being really enraged <laughs> that it <laughs> did not look anything like what was on the box. Uh, I mean, even at eight years old, I recognized uh, something about myself right there. And it was not long before I was making trips to the community college library and I discovered a, a book called The Model Maker's Handbook. Um, some of you may remember that from the way back, and it became my Bible. And I was, and then I found Fine Scale Modeler on the newsstand. And I, I can remember reading Paul Budzik articles when I was like 10 or 12 and thinking, okay, this dude is my hero. And, uh, and I was, you know, entering my, my model airplanes in the county fair. And I mean, it was a thing, but uh, you know, like a lot of us, I left it behind and I didn't get back to it until I was in my early forties. And it happened as a result of a spinal cord injury that I suffered, uh, riding motocross in 2009. And my, uh, I was initially paralyzed from the neck down. Um, and, you know, through good fortune and a shit ton of hard work and just a lot of real stubbornness, I survived that better than about 90% of, of spinal cord injury uh, victims do. And so, albeit very badly, you know, I can walk and drive and, and, and do the things that I need to do. But part of my rehab was, uh, you know, I had an occupational therapist that I was working with almost daily. And she was having me, you know, pick up these marbles and drop them in this cup and and, and that was, you know, that was great, but it was pretty boring. And so one day I told her that I wanted to build a model airplane because I thought that would be great for my fine motor skills. And she was like, yeah, okay, whatever, champ, uh, you, you go for it. And so I did. And it took me about three years to finish that thing working off and on. And, and, and by then it was 2014. And I kind of felt like, okay. I'm kind of enjoying this and I want to learn more. And I just went on this deep dive into YouTube videos. I watched a lot of Paul Bretland's videos. Uh, you know, he's the, he's the, the honcho over at international scale modeler, great Facebook group. Uh, they, he, you know, he and his, and his, and his uh, partner, Lee Larholt, they own ultimate modeling products. And, um, you know, I, I just, 
I owe a lot to the YouTube and Facebook community because I, you know, I, I learned so much and so fast. And then I, one day I was like, well, I'm going to start my own YouTube channel. And 315 episodes later, I think <laughs> I have, you know, it kind of became a thing. I got involved uh, in starting the Scale Modelers Critique Group on Facebook in 2015. And um, that thing has become sort of a, of a legend of its own <laughs> in its own way. I feel like we've built a really beautiful thing there. Got a really deep talent pool, a lot of expertise and a lot of really good knowledge in there. But, you know, we welcome builders of all of all skill levels because all that, that's really required is that you just want to learn and get better. So there's that. I've done a, a few uh, magazine articles. Uh, Mr. Meddings uh, made uh, my day, uh, my year. He put... Uh, a Spitfire, a Tamiya 132nd Spitfire that I built a couple of years ago on the cover of the magazine. And that's, you know, still one of the highlights of, of my of my second modeling career. I uh, I occasionally get commission work. You know, I've had people find me from my YouTube channel and and uh, offer to throw money at me. And, I'm you know, I, I, it's that's not something that I do to pay the bills, but if somebody offers me enough money and and it's something that I'm interested in, because I'm not doing anything that I'm not interested in, that's just a that's the bottom line for me. So you know, there's there's been that, and now I'm even kind of come full circle with my engineering education and product design work that I did back in the day, and I've gotten involved in doing in doing some kit design. So I, you know, it's it's been a thing for me that's just grown out of out of an event in my life that I would not have chosen. Uh, certainly, I would you know uh, if I could rewind and, and undo that spinal cord injury, I would in a heartbeat, even if it means that I never met you guys. But at the same time, I feel like I've made the best of it, and so here I am. And I am not uh, particularly uh, a uh, you know like I don't call myself an aircraft builder. But that's honestly most of what I've done. I love World War II aviation. Uh, I love filthy, dirty, beat-to-shit airplanes that have interesting stories. I'm working on the Hasegawa 132nd P-40 right now, that special Edward boxing. Um, and that's been an adventure. Um, I did the cockpit uh, for the book that Chris is uh, going to talk about here in a second. Uh, about detailing cockpits. That was a lot of fun. Did a lot of my own CAD design and 3D printing to detail that cockpit. Um, and if I can get past the the damn resin wheels that I'm fighting with, maybe I'll finish it soon. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's that's my thing. All of that, and that's the wheels that hold you up. Right. I know it's ridiculous, and, and and after last night's efforts and the and the results, I it could happen. I could end up uh, doing some CAD work and just printing a whole new set of wheels. And I'm not gonna get, I'm not gonna get on that rant at the moment, but yeah, it's it's a thing. Um, I built some sci-fi stuff. I love the Machine and Krieger universe. Those things are just so cool for you know for just pure creative freedom. I, I've been getting, you know, I'm trying to learn figure painting. I'm terrible at it, but I try to do at least one bust or, or similar thing each year. And I'm learning slowly. I don't know what I'm learning. seems like every one I do, I, I do it differently, which is not, not right. 
Well, that goes back to what we were talking about time. A few figure paintings have told me the secret is you just have to spend a lot of time on it. Yeah, I think it is. There's a lot of, yeah, yeah, a lot of muscle memory there. Like I, I am so just beyond jealous of these guys who can crank out a, a, a one-tenth scale bust in a three or four hour painting session. And I just have to remind myself how much muscle memory is, you know, went into that. You know, they weren't doing them that fast when they started. Uh, so you know, maybe I'll get there eventually. Um, but, you know, I occasionally build something shiny. I've got a couple of motorcycles and, and a car in my collection of things. Um, just no tanks. I just haven't been inspired to build a tank. But, you know, just maybe you guys... Just think cars with tracks on. Right. <laughs> that, that, and there you go. Maybe that's the selling point that will get me to build one. Um, I'm a farm kid, so I love tractors because, you know, you can do all the same weathering that you do on a tank without the shooty thing sticking out the front. Uh, so, I, you know, anyway, that's that's enough of me. I, that's that's my thing. That's that's what I do and my reason for being. Have you seen those uh, recently released mini art tractors? Yeah, they, I've seen some of them, and, and they're interesting. But so, okay, <laughs> yeah, we're going to get into farm tractor snobbery right now because the way you guys are with tanks – I am about <laughs> tractors, and, the, and 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 the bottom line is that uh, there are no kits available of iconic American farm tractors. And, and you talk to tractor nerds, there are quite a few, uh, and there just aren't any. The closest we've you need a new, up to date, cutting edge American model company. Something right, right, and and I'm sure that there are reasons, like you know, John Deere probably wants a lot for the license, you know, stuff like that. I mean, there, but you know, the closest we've come is Heller has a kit of the Massey Ferguson TE 20, which is the same basically as a Ford nine in, which is an iconic American tractor, but it's tiny. I mean, it's a yard tractor by modern standards and it's really the only one and you know, it's Heller. So it's not that great. I'm just saying, uh, so yes, I have dreams. Maybe I will parlay my CAD skills into some resin tractor kits. I, I don't know. I think yeah, yeah, farm nut farms. I, right. I think I look. I think it's a legit untapped market. I do. I, I think that there's a lot of guys out there who love the weathering but have no interest in in tanks. Uh, and and I, I I do. I think it's I think it's legit. But that's there's a lot of guys that do tanks that would enjoy doing it. They really might because it is. There's a lot of fun to be had there. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. As as Julian over on on the bench has says, I'm passionate about tractors. <laughs> it's a thing. <laughs> you know, I grew up driving them. I mean, I was driving a tractor when I was ten years old. Uh, so hey, what can I say, Chris? Your turn. You're not getting out of this, buddy. You're it's your turn. You're you're you, you know we they want to know who you are right. too. Yeah, you're not just you're not just gonna sit no, there and be the band. No, not happening, bro. It's time for your solo. And now it should be said. It should be said. You just did an interview on Plastic Posse about a week ago. Yeah, that was did, really yeah. good. I was I, I was listening yeah. to it, thinking this dude is way smarter than me. Do you find with interviews though afterwards you think, oh man, I wish I said that, or I I thought I'd explain that and actually made no fucking <laughs> sense whatsoever. Well, you made good sense to me, and and you sounded so dignified with that. You know, sexy English. <laughs> Tracy, you've met me. You know that's not true. <laughs> well, you're more dignified than me. Um, okay, who am I? I started 
uh, modeling around the same sort of age that you did. Well, I was about six, I think. And my dad got me into modeling. And I think the first thing I built was one of those tiny little uh, Revel Turpits, like one, two thousand, one, two hundred, I don't know, smaller than one, seven hundred. And it had like four bits and I stuck it together. And, and then because I'm English, I did a lot of airfix <laughs> and stuff like that. And, um, and I, the last one I remember building, probably when I was about 12, the first armor kit I built as well was the Tamiya Hanamag, the 19, 1970s mold Hanamag. And I, I remember it because I really loved that. I love the dynamism of the figures jumping over the side of it and stuff like that, even though by today's standards, it's really clunky. And then I did, I did a bit of Warhammer for a while because I was a nerdy kid, which is a good thing. Uh, no problem with, um, with being a nerd, that's for sure. But then I discovered girls and rock and roll and the other two things that <laughs> go with that. And then I decided I was going to be an artist and went to art college and really got, you know, that stick right up my ass. And uh, I ponced around for a bit like I was going to be some great artist. And art college absolutely destroyed any interest I had in art because it just, oh man, it so put me off. I thought I was pretentious, but it just, wow. <laughs> but also... I was probably in the wrong place in my life to go to college and I didn't get as much out of it that I should have. I, you know, I, I kind of pissed it away a bit. And um, after that, got the first job going and then I worked in finance and stuff like that and headhunting and whatnot. And then in about 2008, I suddenly remembered when I was a kid, I used to go in the library at school and I used to read military modeling magazine with the old uh, Hysterex and Andrea figures on the cover and stuff like all the Napoleonics and that. And I thought, oh, I'll look, look at that magazine up and there was a website. So I got into it through forums I started building armor again and i built all the obvious ones like tigers and panthers and all those german boxes with tracks and all the stuff everyone else builds oh. and because i'm a contrarian i thought i'll build english uh, british armor because no one else is building it so i had to go at that for a while and then i got made redundant but i was really into churchills and i thought i'll start a little business making resin interiors for churchills which i mean if i knew them what i knew now i probably wouldn't have because they they weren't as good as they should have been uh, even though I put everything I had into them and they were better than some aftermarket I bought, but you know, not that great, but that was it. That was, I was on the, the track then and I did that as a business and I got fed up with people asking me about Churchill's asking me about this detail and that detail. I thought I'll write a book and when they ask, I can say buy the book. So I don't have to like type long replies and shit. I did that and books is a great business. And also though, I found I, like, um, a couple of other guys have been saying recently about CAD. I found I had to learn book design because designing the book paying someone to design the book would have cost twice what it cost to print it the costs are actually astronomical but when you look at how many hours go into designing a book it's a fair rate it's just it's not economical for a niche publisher that's only doing a thousand of each book you know if you're penguin and you're printing ten thousand or fifty thousand or a hundred thousand of each book it's way economical, but for so, so I have to ask I, I got to ask you this because because I've got your your the scratch building book that you just published with uh, Megas Sonos. Did I say that right? Which is amazing, yeah. and yeah. and that thing must be made like I swear I thought I had gotten a package of tungsten when it showed up in the mail because it was so <laughs> it was <laughs> Huge, so dense and so heavy. <laughs> And not just literally, but in terms of the knowledge that's in there, how how long does it take you? What is that? How, how many pages was that book? A couple? Uh, was it a hundred? Oh, okay. So how long like does that. it take you to to build that book? Well, it took Megas about a year to build it, but uh, a year to write it. But I have to say, he distilled like 
30 years. Right, but what you get delivered is is a Word document or whatever with all the text, right? And a shit shit ton of photos. Yeah, Yeah, I get it. So it's like a kit. Like you have to build the book. And that's what I'm curious about is how long it takes you to do that. Yeah, 150 pages. Um, I just got one out. Uh, It took me about probably six months to do it. But I never work on one thing at a time. I'm always working on several things at a time. So it's hard to know in terms of hours. But on average, I'd say it took me four hours. Four hours a page. So about 600 hours altogether, yeah. But then you have to bear in mind as well that um, I'm still an amateur, although I'm relatively happy with the layout of the book. And I have been happy with the layouts of all my books since um, String Bag. I, I don't think – I look, man, I, you can say you're an amateur, but you wouldn't know it by looking at your books. I mean, it looks professional. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, I mean, others could do it faster. When I worked at Sam, the guy that did the design there, did a 100-page magazine in two weeks. So, you know, although he had adverts and whatever, he would drop it. Was he working on anything else? <laughs> yeah, he was, yeah. <laughs> the company always had him working on, like, five things. Yeah, and that's a formula. I mean, the magazine is basically the same layout every time, just with different elements. And to me, that's that. It's tricky with books because I want every book to look different. Although the Scratch Building Masterclass series, although they're not exactly the same, there is a visual theme running through all of them because I wanted them to look like a series. One visual theme is like you really high quality photography. That's the thing that I, that has impressed me about everything that you edit is that you do love. Yeah, you love and recognize the value of really good photography. Do, do you have to do all of that in like a like? Is there an app like you know like I have CAD software, I have Fusion three hundred and sixty. So is there a similar oh, thing for building a book? Yeah, InDesign. I use uh, Adobe InDesign. Basically, people either use InDesign or they use uh, Quark. And Quark's an older one, but for guys that have trained on it, they love it because you know it's there. It's like you with with Fusion. You know, if you had to jump over to something else. It'd be like, oh, for fuck's sake, things are in the wrong place. And you, know, I can't, you have to like get your head into another uh, interface, if you see what I mean. But I love InDesign. It, it does an awful lot of it for me. Like, you know, you'd snap to certain positions on the page and stuff like that. So you don't have to constantly be measuring and placing carefully and copying things, it, you know. It does have its drawbacks, but it is very, very good. Well, it's the results speak for themselves. And I, I you know, I, 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 I hope that that uh, this podcast has maybe the intended or I don't know, whatever unintended consequence of, of your book sales going up because they really are good. And, and that uh, there, there are things that any scale modeler who, who likes to keep a library of paper books should, should definitely have. Well, Chris, tell everybody where they can find uh, the books. Uh, well, you can get them, of course, from www.insidethearmor.com. Or from most bookstores, actually, you know, most online um, hobby bookstores. Uh, for instance, I sell to BNA in Australia, to Hobbylink Japan and Hobbyland in Osaka, Stevens International in the US, and through Stevens and through Bookworld in the UK, they supply hobby stores and hobby bookstores across the US and Canada. Uh, through Bookworld throughout Europe, in Italy and France and Spain and everywhere. So you can get them pretty much anywhere and if you can't find it then just um go to my site you know if you can't find it locally because likelihood is if you buy it locally you'll end up paying less for and this this is a good point sorry folks we are going to interrupt this program for a commercial announcement (laughs) 
We'll get better at this, but this is a good point to mention that we do have uh, a, a title sponsor we got to talk about, and that's Hobby World USA. We've uh, worked out a deal with Matt Bowl over there. Uh, he's uh, a lot of you guys in the United States know he's a, a great place to go to get MRP paint and virtually anything you need. He's uh, just just an all around good guy and runs a good little business there, and he can get you any of Chris's books. And, and Chris, you've got one we need to talk about too, right? Oh, yeah. There's a new book coming out soon, which is Perfect Pits, uh, which is not a history of coal mining <laughs> in the north of England. It's uh, it's a little A5 book designed to be a sort of a, a cheaper one to pick up, but packed with good stuff. And in there, we've got four different approaches to detailing and making the most of cockpits. Because on every model, there's always... The focal point of the model, you know, somewhere that the eye is always attracted to where guys look first. And let's face it on aircraft, they look at a lot of different things on the aircraft. But certainly a lot of people, particularly with larger aircraft, they're going to be looking at the cockpit and seeing what's done with it. So we've got Will doing his stuff with his painting and everything else in 3D design. Then we've got Jerome Veen, who I worked with on the string bag book, the World War One aircraft book about uh, wingnut wings. He shows you how you can improve your model through painting, through painting effects, and how to get the most out of a World War One cockpit. Then we've got Tom Anis, who people should know runs the fantastic Anis.day, uh, D-E, that is, A-N-Y-Z dot D-E, uh, detailing company that produces little 3D printed resin parts, cords, fantastic for hoses stuff. and what have yeah, you. great stuff. Uh, yeah. Superb decals. And he shows you how to use aftermarket to uh, really improve a cockpit and how to uh, even right down to the toggles and switches in a uh, tornado cockpit, all the little details that usually we just let PE and plastic do. And, and it ends up looking like a bit soft, the detail in most cockpits. So he, he really shows you how to sharpen it up. And then finally, uh, I whip out the white plastic and do a couple of smaller scratch-built cockpits. So you've basically got four approaches to the same uh, thing you've got 3d design you've got painting you've got uh aftermarket and you've got scratch building and of course you can do any of those or you can combine them which is obviously you know we're just giving you four different ideas to and as i expected you're being very low-key about your own contribution to the book uh <laughs> what's the because it gives uh, all japanese aircraft look the same to me what was the one you did Oh, this is funny. I thought um, when I got the project together, it didn't occur to me to make sure we had a spread of scales. And you guys all did 130 seconds. So I thought, shit, someone's got to do a 148 and a 170 second. Otherwise, those guys are going to be really upset. So uh, I had I literally pulled a couple of things out of the stash. Um, one of them was a KI-36, the old Fujimi 170 second kit. Uh, and the other one was the KI-48 148 scale uh, light bomber from AZ models and I picked AZ and Fujimi because there's no point scratch burning a replacement to a modern new cockpit I might as well do it on an older kit to show you how with older kits you can do something to make them pop a well, little bit. pop it certainly does uh, I I mean and you did it in like five minutes well it's muscle memory it's like you said because I scratch build all the time you know the, the amount and the level of detail that you built into those two little things from nothing was truly astonishing. And uh, I think that, that uh, readers are going to get a lot out of that. I, I mean, it's a, 
it was a really a really prime example of true old school scratch building for sure. I like the fact that one end of the book we're going from the latest with 3D design that you've done, and then mine could have come from a 1970s book, you know, the old um, scratch building book. I'm covering everything in between, yeah, really. So. Yeah, I was really proud of myself because I built the the uh, carburetor vent uh, louver actuator mechanism purely from scratch, and I was like. <laughs> That takes too long to say, let alone building it. Right. It took it, it, yeah, it. Yeah. And, and I was like super proud of myself. It was the most complicated little thing that I've ever built from scratch. Had like 20 parts. And then here comes Chris. I'm like, yeah. Well, I think this is, you know, hopefully this gives everybody out there in listener land uh, uh, at least some idea of what we're all about. You know, kind of what our backgrounds are. Uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully we've got the creds to pull this off. But let's let's talk for a minute about how the show's going to go. You know, what we what we want to accomplish. What's our mission in life? Um, you know, our reason for being. What are we going to do here, guys? Well, I think we discovered what this show's going to be as we worked on it. Um, as I said before, we've got. Matt's two-part interview in the bag. We've got another interview in the bag. You can say who that is, right? We, there's no reason to be a secret about it, is there, Chris? Sure, that's uh, David Parker. Yeah. A really good interview with David. I think all three of these interviews were really good, and I think along the way we discovered through the conversations we're having with these guys that we we already know the basics and we know a little bit on our own, but we're also talking to people who have a, a lot of experience and and it's really fun to get into their heads and, and really ask the get them dig deeper. And I, I think, you know, the we recorded the first interview with David Parker, and that's when it all sort of clicked. His work is is readily out there. I was actually surprised at how many people didn't know his work. He's far too modest. Yeah. He is far too yeah, modest. Yeah, he doesn't, um, doesn't blow his own trumpet enough. No, he doesn't. But he's got the skills to pay the bills. And it's not often you get a chance to sit down and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody who's got that kind of skill set. And our natural conversation just got geekier and geekier and, and we were digging deeper and deeper. And at the end of the interview, I wanted another interview. I still had so much to ask, you know, and I think that's, there's nothing wrong with two part interviews and bringing people back to talk more about them because we we really have a lot to say and a lot to ask. And, and you, it's just so rare that you get a chance to sit down one-on-one -on -one with somebody and you don't want to talk entirely about their latest project or what they're known for, introduce them to the public. You want to get that out there, but you also like, that's when your own personal questions start coming in. You're like, okay, yeah, I know all that. Good, good. I'm glad everybody knows who you are. Cool. Now, how the fuck did you make this work? How did you do this one thing? Like, and that leads us down a rabbit hole into some really deep, cool, interesting modeling content. Some stuff that I think if you're on the bench listening to these things, you're going to hit a point where you're going to stop working because you're listening. Yeah. Uh, instead of amen to that. Right. I hope so. Yeah. I hope that's the case. Um, I, I think it's got a life of its own and I think it's going to take us where we want it to go. As long as, you know, we have some listeners who appreciate what we're doing and we don't run ourselves <laughs> out of town. There's going to be some, some guys that, that are going to going to maybe want us to be, cause we plan to talk some shit. All right. I, I, everybody needs to know that. 
We uh, plan to present as much highbrow content with a lowbrow attitude, and we're not going to take ourselves too seriously, but we're going to take the craftsmanship seriously. Um, you know, again, this is an extension of, of, not an extension of, but kind of along the same lines of, of what we're doing in, with SMCG. And uh, so there will be adult language, as the disclaimer at the front says. Um, there may be ideas that uh, will uh, not sit well with some model makers, and that's okay. We're not trying to exclude anybody, but we're going to be open and we're going to be honest and nothing's off limits. You know, we will be irreverent. Uh, that's, again, part of what Chris sold me on is the idea that, you know, that's that we're going to be a little free range with this thing. And, uh, you know, the bottom line is that to hopefully just make it interesting. Right, boss? Interesting, in-depth and entertaining. Yeah. I think we can uh, manage all of those. Uh, I think for me, um, for, for a lot of people, their hobby is just, it's just that a hobby. And they don't want to think about it too much. It's just their escape from normal life. They go and make a model, enjoy making the model, finish the model, make another model. We're not really, I mean, those guys are more than welcome to listen and i think they'll get a lot out of the show but what i really wanted to aim at was the kind of um guys who who really like to think about what they're doing and really like to question their own work question other people's work to to get into sort of the nitty-gritty of why we do what we do how we do what we do and why we do it the way we choose to do it and i think that's you know i think for me i want to presume a certain level of skill already in the listener and maybe um hold their hand and, and uh, dig absolutely. a little deeper on that and go absolutely. a bit further than you. So we're going to talk a lot of shit. We're going to talk a lot of shop. And I love that. Uh, I'm a, I'm an incurable shop talker. <laughs> I, Chris will tell you, I want to talk shop even when he doesn't want to. It's all good. There's never a bad time to talk shop in my opinion. Uh, but we have to talk about the name for a second, because I think the name that we chose sprue cutters union is a perfect embodiment of the philosophy of the show. And so a little history of where that came from. Uh, some of you guys who have been around on the Facebook model making groups and model making pages may remember a little page called the Combat Workshop. Combat Workshop was run by a really talented and funny model maker named J.D. Bybee. Uh, J.D. is just a really cool dude uh, and a talented artist. Uh, he's like, he's one of you guys, uh, Chris and Tracy. I mean, he's he's got mad pen and brush skills as well as, as model making skills. And his thing with Combat Workshop was to present the anti-crew chief point of view. <laughs> you know, because we've all heard like with their, we was particularly with modern jets, like, you know, Oh, no crew chief would ever. Never allow it to get that dirty. Never allow the paint to be mismatched. Never allow it to be faded and whatever. And he, his whole page was dedicated to presenting the counterpoint to that. And he has mad credibility because guess what JD does for a living? He's a crew chief, United States Air Force. He works on F-16s for a living. And he left that behind uh, because he got he's deployed. He's back in the sand right now. And just life in general, he kind of left that behind. Anyway, uh, he had a whole web page and blog. And one of the segments that he did like four years ago was called Sprue Cutters Union. And it was just a, like a little addendum thing to the, to the blog. And he would invite people to join it. And then he would throw out these assignments 
where he would say, okay, everybody in the sprue cutters union, you know, tell us what you're building, tell us why you build, tell us your, you know, whatever it was. And we would all write these little essays, whatever. And I just, I thought it was super cool. And so when, when we started talking about what to call the podcast, I was like, okay, SCU is, is it. And uh, so JD is still out there on the interwebs. And if you know how to find him, you, you can. And so I did, I hunted him down and I was like, dude, here's what we're doing. Can, can we have the name? And he was immediately stoked about it. And, uh, and, and he is, uh, I think we're going to get him on for an interview somewhere down the road. I think he'll be a really interesting guest. Yeah. He's, you know, so anyway, that's why we are the Sprue Cutters Union. Well, we can't forget our, our subtitle, you know, <laughs> our, 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 the International Scale Modeling Tastemaking Cabal. Right. That's a little bit of an inside joke that came up in a in a uh, in a thread uh, in uh, SMCG not too long ago, and you know that yeah, and I, it's it's uh, tongue in cheek, and that's that's the way we're going to be. We may have a different subtitle for every episode, who knows? But well, we weren't we weren't accused of being the international scale modeling taste making cabal. It was just pointed out that there was one. Right. I really want to be in it. They've got a volcano, right, with a thing that opens up. Yeah. yeah. We have to. We have to learn the secret handshake, or you know, find the find the place where they meet. You know, uh, under the full moon. I feel like if we just keep calling ourselves that, they'll they'll reach out to us. Yeah. <laughs> There'll be a cease and desist issued anyway. Well, who knows? They may have already, and it came in a coded message that we just didn't recognize yet. Could be uh, one of those things where you have to like go to certain message boards and look for certain keywords and. If you put them all together, getting into some major, you know, Dan Brown kind of shit, who knows? But that's our deal. And uh, we're also going to be focusing on, you know, like we've said, in- interviews with really interesting people from the model making community. We've got some things that are in the works, people that we are trying to get to come over here for this thing. Um, and hopefully after they hear this first episode, they won't change <laughs> their minds but but uh, that's the deal and uh i think if you guys are are ready right it's we've got a we've got a big interview with mr mcdougall um that's about an hour long so <laughs> we we originally we were gonna like yeah let's keep this thing to an hour total that went out the window immediately um and you know we don't care um, if you, you know, it's, I get accused all the time of my videos on YouTube of being long winded. And that's because we're trying to, you know, trying to get all the detail in there, trying to make it thick, meaty, and delicious. Uh, and if that takes too long, okay, fine. That's what the pause button's for. Use it. Um, but we're going to just try and present good quality content and it takes as long as it takes, just like one of Tracy's beautiful tank models, right guys? Just like one of Tracy's. <laughs> yeah, those are long pauses. I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> All right, guys. So that's uh, I think that's that's a pretty good bit about us and what our mission in life is and what this podcast is going to be all about. So it's time for us to get into our very first Sprue Cutters Union interview. And that is going to be with the uh, famous, maybe infamous, depending on your point of view, Matt McDougall of Dugues Models. Uh, if you're not familiar, you can find him over at dugsmodels.com. Uh, you can find him on Facebook in his group, his page of the same name. You can find him on Scale Modelers Critique Group. And we just felt like that he would be a really good way for us to kick this thing off. 
So let's get right to it. Matt, how's it going, man? It's going pretty good and uh, glad to be in on this on the ground floor. It's always always fun to kind of see where these things start from. Yeah, we, we felt like you were like really the right guest for our very first interview. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, partly because, you know, you're we're friends with you. We know you. We figured you'd be a friendly guinea pig. And we have absolutely no fucking idea what we're doing yet. So, you know, it's it's, it's good. It's good because we don't feel a lot of pressure. Um, but also because uh, you know you're just an interesting guy and a great model maker, and you've always got uh, you know fun things to say and talk about. Uh, but also, you know, because uh, what we're trying to do with the Sprue Cutters Union podcast is kind of fill a space that we feel like is available uh, in the podcasting space right now. I mean, you know, look, with with the COVID thing, the podcasting model making space has filled up remarkably fast and there's some great stuff happening there. You know, the the uh, the plastic posse guys are doing fantastic work. The on the bench guys, of course, are the OGs. Um, you know, they're doing great work with a hundred plus episodes. Uh, it's, and it's all good. Um, but we, you know, we wanted to do something that was not sort of being done yet. Um, you know, we kind of want to be a little disruptive. We want to talk some shit. We want to get a little bit deeper and a little, you know, uh, maybe go some places that the other guys are, are not going. And as you well recall, that was our sort of uh, driving force when we started Scale Modelers Critique Group. And, you know, <laughs> we, we all know how history worked out there. And so you being a part of that, I, I, you know, we just felt like that made you sort of the perfect guest. And so we're going to go deep. Outstanding. So, all right, so let's just get right into some of the history then. Uh, first thing, you know, with, and I don't want to make this about SMCG, but, you know, talk from your perspective about why we did that and, and kind of what it's evolved into. Yeah, so uh, from my perspective, a lot of where it came from was the frustration of the attaboy kind of trope that you see on any sort of online modeling community, whether it's forums, Facebook, wherever, where no matter how good or bad the kit is, no matter what's going on, most of the replies are some sort of attaboy or that's amazing, or I just need to quit modeling now and give up the hobby and <laughs> that kind of bullshit. And it gets really tiresome just kind of getting those vague pat on the head platitudes, you know, dopamine and people appreciating what you're doing is nice and all, but there's no way to improve when all you get is like a little you know, weak thumbs up kind of a thing. And so the idea for the critique group was to throw that on its head and get rid of the attaboys and really focus much more on where things can be improved and pushing the, you know, essentially pushing the limits. And a lot of it comes from my own experience as a creative professional, because I'm a copywriter. And if all I got were, you know, pats on the head and attaboys, my career would have stalled out a long time ago. I mean, I've had to get used to people, you know, basically seeing what I spent weeks writing and be like, that shit, start over again. <laughs> and, you know, it, it really is hard to deal with at first, but uh, after years and years in the profession, you know, you kind of learn to crave feedback, especially when it's good feedback. And you also learn to distinguish between what's good feedback and what's a client who has 
no clue what they're talking about. And so I figured if we could find something similar in the modeling world, you know, other people whose opinions and skill sets we respect and who can look at something with an appraising eye and actually give useful feedback and help you find new ways of exploring things and doing things, that could be really powerful. And I think that's exactly what SMCG has become over the years. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, there is a lot of, uh, there is a lot of shit posting and there is a lot of you know, back and forth and banter, but when it comes to critique and when it comes to actually pushing each other to do better, I think we excel at that better than probably anywhere else on the internet. I do too. My, you know, my, my, uh, 30 second elevator tagline is take the craftsmanship seriously, but don't take ourselves very seriously. And, you know, at Tracy, you know, you're, you're kind of brand new to the group. You're kind of getting used to the, to the dick jokes and the gifs and the memes, but you know, we, we, whoa, whoa, whoa. gifs, what the, gifs, gifs. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I knew that was coming and I already know that I'm outnumbered <laughs> on, on that one, but you're wrong. You're not outnumbered. You're just I, wrong. I am. Hey, listen, I'm an old, I'm an old salty veteran at defending my position on, on, <laughs> it, being, on it being a gif. So if we want to just make that a whole episode, we can, but let's not get sidetracked. Right. We have, we have way more important things to talk about. I, you know, we're not going to talk about traffic design. Oh, come on. Don't, <laughs> let's, nope. Nope. No, I'm not taking that bait. I'm not taking that bait. <laughs> I swear this this whole uh, gift gif thing is like a World War One battlefield. <laughs> it goes nowhere. It's like the potted cream thing in England. Trust me. And I and I've been outnumbered, you know, with Matt and and other guys in in our little team running SMCG on this deal from like day one. So uh, you know, you're not even gonna not gonna not gonna phase me. But well, on the internet, it's mostly text anyway, so we can we can all survive. <laughs> But speaking of of people being triggered about things, uh, true. <laughs> we, you know, this is a great time for us to get into. You know, SMCG. One of the things that I love the most about about it is that we've built a legend, right? Like we, you know, people will drop references to uh, the study in light episode or, <laughs> you know, different sorts of things that have happened in the group that have become like group lore. And you don't right. see that with other model making groups. And, and I think it's very unique and fun and, and cool. And, and one of those, well, because if someone refers to an attaboy, how are you going to know which one it was? <laughs> right. <laughs> Tracy hasn't been involved long enough to kind of pick up on some of these legends, but, but they're in there and, and, you know, we don't delete much if anything. So you can always go back and, and find that stuff. But um, you know, one of the episodes uh, was way back in the day when Matt, when you wrote your um, and, and people should know that they can find you at dugsmodels.com and you've got a wonderful blog with lots of, of really well-written and original thinking on the topic. And, and one of the posts that you wrote uh, was uh, called Fetishizing the Enemy. And it was uh, a very, I, th I, I thought, uh, pointed but yet thoughtful and well-laid-out, uh, succinct, coherent, um, uh sort of uh, of uh, essay on the uh, prevalence of Nazi subjects in the model making space. 
and <laughs> yeah, that that turned into a shitstorm. So let's let's oh, reminisce. Yeah. Let's go back to that. Yeah. So uh, holy shit, I still like I still you know every couple of weeks I'll still get some sort of angry comment popping up on that blog. Um, you know, and Gmail reminds me it's like you have a new comment. Someone complaining about this. Um, <laughs> basically, yeah, it, it started with just me noticing that you know felt like at least one out of every two, if not more subjects that were being built were, um, you know, were Nazi subjects and world war two German armor, essentially, but also a lot of aircraft. Um, you know, every, I, I feel like in the figure space, it's almost hard to find any sort of military figure from the 20th century that is not a Nazi of some form. And the ones that are, are all like very boring poses. You know, I feel like as it, I got, I can't even remember all the different, figure manufacturers, but it feels like every time they come out, it's like, Oh, look, it's another SS guy in a, you know, in some sort of raincoat. Great. Pointing at something. Pointing at something. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, German quite often. It's just SS by far. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a huge SS focus and especially in figures, but also, I mean, also in armors, like tons of SS division stuff gets pumped out. Right. Um, I feel like, you know, dragon, especially for a while there, it felt like they were making literally every single tank the SS ever drove, like every single actual serial number. Um, you know, it got a, a bit crazy, but I actually went in in that post and looked at like, was it scale hobbyist? I think at the time had a pretty good list of various kits out there. So I did like a census of, you know, available 135th armor kits and looked at how many were World War II German subjects versus how many were, you know, US or, you know, other allies or more modern subjects. And the number of kits that, you know, are claimed by World War II German subjects is ridiculously high. Um, you know, it's like, I would say probably, I'd have to go back and look at the numbers, but it was something like, you know, at least 50%, if not more, of all kits in those scales were German World War II subjects. Well, and I went back and reread it last night just to refresh myself, and 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 you found, and this is what I loved about it, is you didn't, this was not just like, okay, blah, 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 my opinion. You were right. backing it up with numbers. And I think you found that that twenty eight percent of 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 fighter uh, or, or of uh, of uh, fighter plane kits were German subjects when they have basically when they had basically three. I mean, you can, it's really like two and a quarter because the two sixty two didn't really contribute much. It was the one ninety right. and the and the one oh nine. And you compare that to like American fighter planes. You know, we had like a half dozen that were that were that were relevant um and then it was even and and yet we you know american kits were only like 25 percent of the total yeah so it's grossly disproportionate there and then you go to the armor kits and it's even more uh more worse (laughs) (laughs) uh and uh you've got like what was Purely from a sort of geeky statistical thing there like you admit though there are a lot more german types in armor but nevertheless the, uh, the the proportions were pretty shocking. Yes, right. yes. I mean, it's, you know, and it's it's very easy to, to see, you know, say something like, "Oh, well, you know, the U.S. had basically the Sherman," but it's like if you look at the number of variants of the Sherman and the number of ones that just aren't done or that were done maybe once, you know, like even something like a uh, M4A176, you know, those were pretty yeah. prevalent in Normandy. And I know Asuka did a kit once upon a time that you can't find unless you're willing to pay through the nose for it, and I think Dragon did one. And other they than did that, the one, didn't they? Um, Cobra, whatever it was, Operation Cobra yeah. kit. 
yeah. And then other than that, you're, you're kind of having to cobble it together from other things. And, you know, I can't imagine the, uh, the armor manufacturers like skipping a fairly major variant of say the Panzer four, like, you know, it's out there somewhere, even if Tamiya hasn't gotten around to it yet, or Ryefield hasn't gotten around to it yet. Somebody's done it multiple times. Dragon probably have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, a, a big part of why I why I kind of put that post together in the first place wasn't really to like shame people for building Nazi kits. Um, I think you know, not to delve too far into politics, but just kind of seeing the way the world has gone since I wrote that post. Um, maybe there is some sort of deeper thing at work at or, or at play in why people are choosing those subjects. But the main point of the post was to kind of get people to stop and think like, why am I building so many of these things? Uh, you know, not, I mean, not I, like the, the interesting thing for me about it. You seem to be just asking the question. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, not giving an answer. Uh, yeah. And it's like, uh, you know, like TJ over on the plastic posse is, you know, he's always going on about, he, he likes to, he likes to think about why he does certain things. And to me, subject to choice is just another part of that. It's like, why, you know, another Panzer, why another, what, you know, I can't pronounce half the damn German subjects, uh, you know, why another Stug or whatever, you know, or the, uh, the big mortar ones, like why this, why that, you know, they're, that's the same kind of kits over and over again. And I don't really have a problem with German kits. If it's like part of this sort of eclectic mix of like general history, like I've built German aircraft, I've built German tanks. I probably will again. But there are certain subsets of modeling where you see nothing but or almost overwhelmingly German subjects over and over and over and over again. And it's this weird kind of obsession. So I wanted to poke into like why you see that and why you don't see people like only building Canadian subjects or why you don't see people only building Italian subjects or Japanese subjects. And a lot of the answers that I got in the comments were things like they just look cooler or... I like the camouflage schemes or, you know, things like it was it, a lot of it was a kind of shallow approach to the subject matter. Uh, and then I also got people saying, you know, a lot of the typical false equivalence bullshit of, Oh, well the Americans also killed a lot of people and like they firebombed Tokyo. And it's like, yeah, you know, they didn't. Oh, I hate that argument. Yeah. It's like, well, that was also, you know, war and yeah, it sucks. And it's not a thing that we should really be proud of, but we also weren't, systematically hurting people into ovens. So, you know, I mean, it's, I think they're two different things, but also at the same time, you don't see a lot of people, you know, fetishizing B-29s and just building a bunch of B-29s. So, yeah. It's, it, it's, a, it's a very, it's a very nuanced thing because, you know, you've, you've got the sort of surface level thing with, you know, looks cool. And, and honestly, I, I sort of, I, I mean, I know you feel like that's pretty shallow, but I honestly think that it is, uh, you know, the, 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 the predominant reason. I mean, like for me, if I ever decide to build a, a, a German tank, looks is going to be the only reason that I will <laughs> could, could use to justify it because it's interesting. Uh, it, prov you know, provides a rich field of opportunity for, for weathering and painting and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm cool with that. I mean, look, we're dudes. We're simple-minded. You know, it, all it takes is a, is a little bit of underboob to distract us. So, you know. I, I don't have a hard time believing that. But what weirds me out is when it goes to the next level and you get guys who are plastering German markings on Star Wars vehicles. Yeah. And, and that's, 
yeah, I mean, that's just uncreative and derivative and, and boring. But then you've got this thing, and this seems to be a Japanese thing, maybe. Correct me if I'm wrong, where they're like, like uh, Tracy was talking about it the other day, I think. Or maybe, no, it was on a, it wasn't, sorry, Tracy, I was, I don't know why I confused, why I thought it was you talking about this, but somebody mentioned like the uh, uh, incorporating animals into it, like, yes, like hippos and cats. That was on Plastic Potty, I think. That's right, it was. It was on the bench. I've I've slept since then, what can I say? (laughs) Point, point being is is now you've got this other level where people are 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 transposing it onto other stuff that's weird all by itself. I mean, let's not even get into anime girls in Nazi, you know, SS uniforms. I mean, it, it's just it's just it's weirdness. You what? Well, I have to jump in. When you go to Asia, you have to remember that to them, World War Two was the war in Asia. So. World War Two in Europe is kind of like a, um, it's like a story, you know. It's like uh, not like something that's visceral that happened to Europeans, and definitely you know to Americans that that um, came involved in that European conflict that, that that grew to a world war. To them, there's there's no personal connection, so I think they're less, they have less taboo about it than we do, of making fun of it, if you see what I mean, or making light of it. Well, I mean, I wonder if that plays into why you're you see so much um, German armor, German aircraft, because a lot of the model makers that we're exposed to are European, and perhaps it's they feel that connection where you rarely see very much Japanese armor um, being built, you know, uh, by Europeans. You see a lot more of it coming out of Japan. I mean. Maybe it's a matter of the the history surrounding you in your area that kind of plays into that a little bit. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, I think that definitely plays into it. I mean, and it's it's also like you know, I was a history major in college, and it's very easy to find courses on ancient Rome or medieval Europe. But you know, you you try to go a little bit in any other direction, like you try to go just a little bit east and study the Byzantine Empire. Good luck finding anything of depth. Um, you know, you get like like maybe a survey course if you're lucky and you know beyond that it's nothing and so i think maybe the same thing that sort of just you know i don't want to say local bias because i mean you know we're literally talking hemispheres of a planet here but uh, you know I, I think there's definitely like a regional bias of of some kind of play in subjects that we choose and i also think a lot of it comes down to you know i, I mean i couldn't tell you one japanese tank from another just you know <laughs> You know, I know they're called like Chiha and things like that, um, but you really have to get to like, you know, Cold War stuff for me to understand any actual Japanese tanks. Um, you know, and I don't know shit about tanks, but even I know that the Germans kind of have this legend of you know this armored warfare thing and the Blitzkrieg and all that, mm-hmm. uh, and the Japanese. I mean, you know, island warfare that just wasn't really a thing. Uh, so, well, yeah, a lot. We didn't see a lot of their tanks because, yeah, to your point, they were. You know, we were fighting them on islands, and by the time we got to those islands, we'd already, you know, shut them shut them off with blockades and things like that, so they couldn't necessarily supply tanks there anyway. So it's kind of what they had on hand. That's partly because the war in the east to us is the war of the Pacific yeah. Islands, but to yeah. the Japanese, and especially to the Chinese, it's the war in China. The primary yeah. 
uh, theatre of conflict in that area for them was the Second Sino-Japanese War, where there was mm -hmm. a lot of armour and a lot of how that war played out influenced how armour was developed. And which <laughs> I've been building a lot of Japanese armour and reading your blogs again and aircraft, it's made me think why I do that because they don't exactly have a great reputation either, <laughs> uh, particularly with the chemical warfare unit in China and, um, uh, you know, and obviously uh, Nanjing, things like that. You know, the, the feeling and the stories around that. And it's caused me to think, why do I build it? You know, is it just because it looks cool and, and so on? Tracy, I know you built quite a bit of armor. You just did that house F pimp and wagon thing, whatever it was. <laughs> that's, that's, beautiful. Hetzer. that's beautiful. Uh, do you feel attacked right now? No, not at all. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking the, I also build, uh, I've built quite a bit of, of Japanese armor as well. Um, and I was just kind of thinking how the war in China, I mean, we don't think about a Japanese blitzkrieg, but, the Japanese had armor and they rolled into China with, with, uh, you know, an iron fist that the Chinese didn't really have to, to combat that. So there is a comparison to be made between the German blitzkrieg and, and what happened in China with Japanese armor. Um, Japanese armor is just not, it's not very well documented outside of Japan. Um, but you've got guys like Harvey Lowe who, are continuously like kind of digging deep and building these cool little obscure vehicles with just this amazing skill level. And I think as it's just a matter of putting it in front of people um, and hoping that the interest kind of builds um, as much as we've kind of made fun of dragon, they um, they're, they've recently put out uh, in the last decade, uh, a Hago, a Chiha, um, and the uh, the Kami uh, amphibious tank. I mean, they're excellent kits. Um, I built the Kami in, in less than a week. And for me, that's meteor speed. And it's just a fantastic <laughs> Yeah, but it's like a box that tracks you. Yeah, it is. But everything <laughs> just the way it was supposed You really didn't have to do anything more than open the box and replace the tracks because they sucked. Um but likewise, there's a, a real lack of uh, figures from that theater. Mm -hmm. uh, and the ones that are out are not great. You know, very stiff poses and, and a little caricatured with bonsai attacks and things like that. There's no casual sort of poses uh, for either the U.S. forces or Japanese forces. So, you know, again, I, there's a little bit out there, but I, I wish there were more. Um, but maybe it's time for me to try my hand at sculpting something. I think you just uncovered it though, Tracy. I mean, come on, do, do you really want to build something called a chi ha or something called a tiger? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, we're simple. I, I, I don't think the explanations are, are much more complex than that in most cases, but I'll tell you exactly what that is. That's because the chi has tiny and the tiger's really big and everyone likes it to is, build the big it's ones. Big, the big it's, burly, it's gnarly. It's all the things that we, you know, that we tend to like as, as dudes. Uh, I mean, you know, but, but some people certainly did feel attacked by that post. They, you know, skipped over the statistics. They skipped over the nuanced discussion of the possible reasons, completely missed the fact that you weren't accusing anybody of goose stepping 
and went straight to the rage. <laughs> that was the interesting part, wasn't it? That the question yeah, was asked, and they assumed was... you were giving an answer, and they yeah, responded yeah. to the assumption, not the question. Yeah, one of one of the things that was brought up in that in that um, your article, your your diatribe, um, <laughs> was, and, and I sort of it made me stop and think. Like a lot of people, uh, I've seen a lot of people kind of respond to that. Uh, um, question with, well, I, I only build access vehicles uh, defeated, uh, knocked out. And that's what I do. I, I do build a lot of access armor, but it, I don't feel like I'm glorifying <clears throat> who used it mm-hmm. as much as the aesthetic of the vehicle. Again, a super shallow reason to do it, but I'm not building SS guys pointing at their next conquest. Uh, you know, nor am I building a dead figure because I think that's in poor taste. But I will build a knocked out German tank and a, and a Russian soldier standing next to it because, mm. hey, you fucking lost. Right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> no matter how cool your vehicle was and your 88 millimeter phallus symbol, you still lost. <laughs> and I don't want people to forget that. Yeah. I, I think that that's something that I do with my own builds too. Like the last two uh, Luftwaffe things I've built, one of them was an ME-262 that was actually – found in uh oh god where was it now i can't remember. i love that build yeah the, the one with it's like it was found off a uh switzerland you know, off of, was it switzerland yeah i think that was i think that's when they flew to switzerland uh, yeah oh it was it was uh it was innsbruck austria sorry just oh, okay. remember the name, austria but, uh, switzerland it's all the same yeah <laughs> that different that country uh, <laughs> i'm an but, american uh, i'm completely ignorant of geography right but i, I, I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I was drawn to that subject because it was it was such a interesting depiction of you know kind of the the sad desolate end of Nazi Germany where it's like you know this pinnacle of technology just abandoned on the side of a runway with like one of its main landing gear collapsed and it's just kind of lying there and there's bird shit on the tail you know and it's like it, it to me it it told a really interesting interesting story maybe about broader history just in what it was. And then the other one I did was actually a, uh, it was a 109 G10 that was one of the many, many 109s and 190s that pilots flew into U.S. air bases and defected or surrendered. And that's another one where I think just, you know, the circumstances of that, you know, I mean, there's some interesting stories of like pilots stowing their wives and girlfriends in the luggage compartment to escape and things, you know, and stuff like that. And so, there, there's enough interestingness there beyond just it's a cool looking plane with cool camouflage or, you know, it's this, you know, it's this ace who shot down 50 Russians or whatnot. You know, it's like there, there's an interesting, but also um, I just got into a sentence that I can't finish. Um, <laughs> I mean, for me know, with the 262, that, that's a great comment on the his- historiography. Of uh, that people spout about German armor or aircraft yeah. that it's this amazing technology which was so far ahead of its time and like you say they still lost. Yeah, it's it's like it's like they went to war with a few guys who had Swiss watches because they thought them knowing exactly what time it was was going to mean certain victory, as opposed to us and the Russians giving everybody a Timex and going you know in in in, in large numbers. It's it was just a fundamentally stupid strategy. And, and I love when that gets pointed out as counterpoint to the great engineering trope. 
One, I, I also feel like it's one of those things that sort of evolved as the war went on. Um, you know, when they when the when the war first started, I mean, it's like the Panzer two and Panzer three, Panzer one, Panzer two, Panzer three. They were relatively rugged, simple machines, and you know, the the early one hundred nines, same thing. They could build those things all day long, but they you know, pouring so many resources into things like Tigers or into 262s or into, you know, all the various Luft 46 type subjects that never made it to combat. There was this whole, like, let's put our eggs in this miracle basket of like, you know, we're going to find this wonder weapon that'll destroy the allies as opposed to the strategy, you know, the allies basically stuck to, which was build a lot of the thing that is good enough. And, you know, it's, yeah, a, a Tiger can knock out three Shermans. That's great. But you know, a tiger versus 20 Shermans, tough shit. You know, everybody knows which way that's going to go. And so it, it's it's interesting to, you know, kind of dig into finding out where it diverged and why it diverged. And a lot of it was just incompetency at the top and sort of, you know, maybe fascism isn't the isn't the best way to uh, to run a country or to run a, you know, wartime, uh, <laughs> wartime logistics <laughs> operation. Well, one of the things that I kind of reflected on with the, the 262 build you did is you've got the pinnacle of technology um, depicted in impotence. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's just, yeah, I mean, you had the technology, but it's not dangerous now, you know? Yeah. And that's, I think, a pretty, if you look past um, cool camouflage and cool vehicles and you look at a, at a uh, vignette like that, what you're really seeing is like, well, you know, even even your technology couldn't save you. Yeah. You know, which I think is a one of the reasons why I really like that that uh, vignette that you did. It was very well done as well, but it's one of those that I look at and I was like, "Well, fuck, I'm not going to build it now because he did it better than me." You know? Don't you hate when that happens? You're going to build a model, yeah. and someone else does it so much better, and you think, "Fuck it, I'm not doing it." I, yeah, I'm, yeah, really, I'm, I'm done with it at that point. I'm not going to build yeah. it. It's not on my my project list anymore. Basically, anytime I watch, yeah, uh, thanks for ruining it, Matt. <laughs> Basically, anytime I watch uh, Fanch Lubin working on his uh, Seahawk right now, it's like, well, right. I'm not <laughs> right. Yeah, he yeah, is. A, he is an absolute madman. Well, so Matt, you you wrote a follow up to that piece four years later when you know we were in the thick of some political things here in the United States. Right. And, and how did that? How did that go? Did you uh, did you receive uh, as much hate for the for the follow up? Oh, for sure. Yeah, just, uh, just a petrol on that fire. Yeah, I, I mean, it, th there was, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely did pour some pour some uh, fuel on the flames, and those flames did did rise accordingly. Um, there was definitely pushback, but I would also say I saw a lot more agreement several years later than I did the first time around. And just overall in the in the modeling space, I feel like I don't know if it has to do with just there's more kit variety nowadays. Um, you know, Meng and Tacom and Ryefield and all those have come out with a whole bunch of non-german builds i mean they've done a, they've done a lot of german stuff too but they've put out a bunch of other kits from all kinds of different countries from all kinds of different eras and so maybe that just extra selection has to do with it or maybe that's the market reacting i don't know uh, but i've seen the prevalence of german kits kind of slide off a little bit and now you know you see a lot more like world war one armored cars or random french armored cars from the cold war or you know modern german armor or, you know, Sherman's have been making a comeback M3s uh, with Tacom and Mini Art. And, uh, you know, Tamiya did their kit too. So I, I don't know if it's people are choosing differently or the kits are, you know, giving them more options, but it definitely seems like 
to me at least there's been a shift since I per- since I posted that first post. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing. I remember being told that, um, uh, well, what we go back now, five, six, seven years, when I said, why do Dragon only make Panzers? Being told by someone uh, who ran a, ran a modeling forum at the time who was very close to them, German cells. That's all it is, German cells. And then, mm. But you've got to ask, does anything else sell if no one makes it? And if they start making it and it starts selling, yeah. then maybe, you know, like you say, there's a lot more available now. Maybe that's why people are buying it. But how do you know whether supply is driving demand or demand is driving supply? Or... Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's kind of like the, the whole, uh, you know, the whole thing that Wingnut Wings was built on where nobody nobody thought there was a market for 132nd scale biplanes from World War One, And they went and proved there was, well, until they collapsed. But, uh, you know. <laughs> Not a profitable market. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I personally think they made some poor subject choice decisions over the years or they you know there, there were some easy layups they could you know it's like it's kind of like with uh automakers you know it's like make the mid-size suv that everybody wants to buy and use that to finance the cool weird stuff uh, you know and wingnut just kind of went all in on the cool weird stuff and they didn't necessarily bother with that popular mid-size suv until way too late um i think that might honestly be what is what it what has happened to kitty hawk as well but Ah, now there's a, yeah, that's a, that's a timely subject. We are, we are just hours. We, we, but we, but we should note uh, that, that by the time this comes out, it'll be old news. Yeah. But uh, we are just within hours of seeing the Kitty Hawk Facebook page announce that Kitty Hawk and Panda are shutting down. Um, and you know, Matt, I'm, I, I mean, you have to feel a little responsible because we remember the whole fitter debacle, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I should paint a kill marking on the uh, side of my car. <laughs> <laughs> For those who so, don't know about it, can you tell us about that and how that, yeah, explain, tell, tell, tell that story. That's a, that's also part of SMCG lore. Yeah. So, uh, first, I mean, first of all, I just want to say that I, I do feel bad that they're shutting down just, you know, any sort of, any sort of business having to you know, closes doors sucks. I don't like to see it. Yeah. Um, it's not good. Nobody wishes yeah. that. Um, I mean, honestly, you know, going back to, you know, the SU 17 and even before um, my main beef with Kitty Huck has always been, that they, they have shown so much promise in so many areas, but then they always seem to have that promise and then just kind of piss it away in the last, you know, 30% of a kit. And so it started with things like the, uh, you know, their first kit was like, that the F-94 Starfire or something like that. And it was like, it had promise, but it had some really interesting or bad engineering choices. The F-35s were, again, interesting, but, you know, it was like the one that I got to do a review on, like one of the sprues looks like somebody just left it in a microwave for about an hour. (laughs) One of the tires was literally melted. Uh, And so, you know, but it's like the fit was kind of so-so and they had all these open bays and stuff. And so in my review, it was like, Fewer open bays, just focus on getting the simple thing right, make it build right, then start working on like all those opened up features. And they never really stopped with the whole opened up features. You know, it's like the Jaguar came out and they had the avionics bay opened up. And it's like, well, the Jaguar was known for having kind of shitty avionics. So why would you want to highlight the avionics bay? Uh, Most people don't necessarily want to build them with those open anyway. So it's a weird choice. But um, anyway, after a few of those... uh, you know, promising butt type reviews, they stopped sending me kits. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But I mean, you know, it's like I I, I did see a, a massive leap in their detail capabilities from like the you know, especially from the F thirty fives into the Jaguar into the MiG twenty five. Like they stepped up their surface detail game quite a bit, but they still never really stopped to get the whole engineering and build quality and fit quite right. I mean, even even their later stuff that goes together pretty well, you still have like upper and lower wings joining with a join line running diagonally across control surfaces, which makes no sense. <laughs> um, you know, or like the SU-35 of theirs, I, I did the flank off a little while ago. Um, they forgot to put notches in for the gear, for the gear bay doors. They're just, there were no notches on one side, just completely gone. Uh, the other side is fine, but it's like, how do you miss that? Uh, but yeah, with the SU-17, it was, it was back when I was doing, um, naked build review so basically just building the kit you know out of the box bare plastic no filler no paint nothing just to kind of see just to direct purely see how the engineering and the fit was working out yeah and uh not the best kit and i mean honestly the the stuff that the stuff that became the most controversial i think was honestly some of the more minor elements of the kit like i put it together following the kit instructions which had you put you know forward fuselage halves together middle fuselage halves together the tail together and then kind of join them all together in like a big long tube. And that did not go very well. Um, I definitely agree that, you know, putting them together, like whole side of fuselage first and then join those two sides together would have been a much cleaner way to go. But I was following what the kit said. Well, you were doing a pure, you were doing a pure review. Like, yes, this is exactly what they gave us. This is exactly how they're telling us to build it. So let's not assume any level of skill or knowledge outside of that. Yeah. You know, let's just see exactly what we've been given for our money. And I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it was it was an interesting build in a number of ways. Like the the wings and the fit of the wings to the fuselage is to this day one of the better modeling experiences I've ever, I've ever had. Like the fit was phenomenal. I don't think I ever even glued the wings into the fuselage. They just plugged right in and sat there and there were no seams or anything. Um, but then you had stuff like the landing gear struts were super floppy and the thing would literally, you know, if you, if you touched it, it would literally kind of like bounce and wiggle for a couple seconds before it righted it. So, I mean, there, there were some, there were some very good parts of the build again, like the wings being amazing. There were also some very not great parts of the build, like the gear struts, uh, the intake, like the shot cone missing the air splitter behind it. Um, you know, their use of these weird little tab joins on the fuselage that basically only lock only lock it in in like a forward back movement, but not an up down movement. So it it was a, it was a frustrating kit in many ways. But uh, you know, it, it like all Kitty Hawk kits that I've ever touched, it showed promise and also you know a bit of I I don't know whether to call it incompetence or laziness or whatever it was, but it was you know, a, a lack of follow through on just kind of the, the stuff that would turn it from a mediocre kit into a really great kit. And the fact that it never really got solved is a bit frustrating. Uh, Some of it was like, they just basically, once the guy who did the, the design work was done, he handed it off to the tool makers and never looked again because yeah. they would have things like, you know, sprue gates right in the middle of a, of a notch where a tab was supposed to fit. Mm-hmm. Just stupid stuff yeah. that really is unforgivable. Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't know what. I'm not sure if it's you that said it or um someone else, but it, it sounded like they, what they said was it's like um an early test shot, and instead of carrying on and refining it, they just thought fuck it, let's release it. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's it is it has always felt that way to me. It's felt like, um, you know, two more weeks of QA and they would have been fine. But those two weeks are really critical, and that's how you get like ejector pin marks inside of a tiny little one millimeter square plug that you're supposed to put something else into. And it's like, how the hell do you get the ejector pin mark out of that? You know, I don't I don't have tools small enough for that. Uh, but thinking to you know the fact that they are now shutting down, I don't know if that is due to the fact that they had this kind of carried reputation for late stage incompetence or if it was, you know, them going all in on, I guess, maybe uh, less than mainstream subjects, like. Or having their, or having their marketing guy make, uh, make, make fun of model makers who didn't like their kits with memes on Facebook. Right. <laughs> we can't, we can't forget that little episode. Yeah, that was I mean, one. You know, yeah. In, in, in the annals of uh, misguided marketing responses, that, that one, that, that's a, that one's pretty solid. Well, they're, they're, I mean, they, well, I guess I should say they were a frustrating company um, in the sense that I, like, I always wanted their kits to be good because they were doing some really fascinating and interesting subjects. And the fact that they were doing those subjects also kind of meant that nobody else would touch those subjects for a long time. Like, <laughs> you know, you're not going to see another one thirty second scale Kingfisher or OV 10 Bronco for decades at this point, probably. And that's frustrating because those kits are annoying. Um, you know, they have some very questionable design stuff. I mean, I remember when I got the Kingfisher, I was jazzed because the Kingfisher is a favorite of mine and opened it up and looked at the, uh, looked at the sprue gates around some of the engine parts. And, it's, you know, it's like you have the, uh, you know, like you have the, um, the cylinder ring or the, the pushrod ring that fits onto the engine cylinders. And the sprue gates around that are so thick that there is no way to remove it without destroying the part. Like you can't get sprue cutters in there. You're basically having to deal with like a micro chisel at that point. And it's just, it's, it's a poorly thought out tooling, I guess. And it didn't need to be that way. They didn't, I mean, they didn't have to do it that way. And it just, it's one of those things that kind of sours you on the company over time, but at the same time, their subjects and their level of detail were pretty good. So who knows? But I mean, yeah, I wonder if maybe sticking to things like let's build one thirty second scale Mirage 2000s and every possible version of the Blackhawk and Seahawk you can imagine, um, you know, and I wonder what the market is out there for multiple Seahawks. Like, you know, does, is anybody really buying the SH-60 BF, MH-60R, MH-60, like all of those? I, I mean, I can't see that happening. And so I can't help but wonder if maybe, you know, investing in that sort of thing, sort of a thing was like a, a way down the death spiral. All right. Well, I, uh, you know, I was always curious about the, the Panda uh, 35th scale M1 Abrams. Uh, because I have a friend here in town who was an Abrams driver. And I've always thought, with all the spare time that I have in my life, ha, 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 <laughs> that I would like to build him uh, his tank and present it to him. Um, but I never, I don't think I know anybody who has built any Panda armor. Uh, was, was it as frustrating as, as Kitty Hawk? Um, the one I built was their 116th uh, PZ-38, and... Honestly, it was such a simple kit that it was almost impossible to fuck it up. Um, you know, I'm sure it's the kind of thing that, like, you know, looking back to the, uh, you know, maybe like the old MHAR World War One kits, uh, they can, you know, they can fuck up boxes. But 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it, it was a it was a pretty straightforward build. The tracks were, I would say, the tracks were about on maybe a quality level with like some of Trumpeter's uh, quote unquote workable tracks, where they're mostly workable, but you have to be okay with them falling apart on you. Uh, but other than you know, other than a few things like them not drilling out the barrels on the machine guns in a one sixteenth scale kit, uh, you know that was kind of ridiculous. Uh, but other than that, I mean, it went together well, and it's just a you know, it's a nice simple kit. I'm sure somebody else could have done a better job. I mean, if if you'd scaled it down to one thirty fifth, it'd probably look pretty close to like you know the various one thirty fifth thirty eights that are out there in existence. The rivets look kind of the same and all that. Um, it's just a larger size, but I didn't really have any problems with getting it together. So that was not what I expected going into it for sure. Now that you mention it, if you look at their choice of subjects for armor, they're all pretty simple vehicles. They didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't try to, um, you know, extend their reach into an area that they might not have the quality for. So, yeah, I think, I think they were maybe a bit more humble in the armor category than they were in the aircraft category. Was it yeah. all the same people doing the, doing the design work? I, same. I, I have to assume. Different brand name. Yeah. That's good stuff. I know that the Kitty Hawk thing, you know, like we said, we don't, you know, nobody wants yeah. to see those guys go away. Uh, but, the, you know, they've had a little bit of a frustrating history. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it is part of the, of the, uh, of the legend of, of Matt McDougall for sure. I mean, I know, I know you have still got guys stalking you on the internet, throwing hate at you specifically because they were so enraged about, <laughs> about Fittergate. Uh, so the thing that gets me about it is it's not even so much that they're enraged about that. It's almost like they were enraged about the <laughs> fact that I was daring to say a kit wasn't good. Right, and that's a whole topic right there. We're going to have to allow more time for that. I, I have to say, though, I think the idea that uh, any one modeler or even modelers on Facebook contributed to it is is not the case. I think uh, my experience in the business, the model business, is that uh, people, modelers on Facebook are very small contingent of modelers in general. So while, um, for sure, you know, it's been an interesting episode, I think whatever happening must have been Kitty Hawk business, business, not, um, you know, not public uh, relations. Yeah, see what I mean. Perhaps, perhaps. We'll never, we'll never know. All right. Well, so look, we have eaten up an hour of good stuff, uh, but we have lots more good stuff to cover. We haven't even gotten into Matt's current mad science project that he's doing with this thing called Tank the Rainbow. And we want to talk more, but if, but what we're going to do is break this up into two parts. So we're going to kind of call this the end of part one. And Matt, if we can talk you into it, we're going to have you back for part two, and we'll get into even more fun yeah, stuff. My, my arm is uh, my arm is very capable of being twisted, so I will be here. All right, sounds good. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Tetra Model Works are a leading producer of premium photo etch sets for all kinds of modeling genres. From armor to ships to aircraft and more, they make some of the best PE you can buy. And I know because I use it myself. 
I love it so much I even sell it in my own store. The design is outstanding, sharp and clean detail, well designed folds and easily constructed assemblies. Easy to use, their high quality brass is just the right thickness and strong so it won't break on you. Their sets provide the maximum of detail but never with parts you don't need or can't use. Instructions are clear and very easy to follow. Sold in hobby stores around the world, just look for Tetra Model for the very best in photo etch and accessories. You can find a full list of their distributors at tetramodel.com. That's Tetra, T-E-T-R-A, model.com. All right, guys. So that was, I think, I mean, like predicted up front, uh, a great interview, a great way to kick this thing off. Uh, what do you guys think? I am, uh, you know, chomping at the bit to, to get to the second part. I feel like we, um, we scratched we scratched a lot of the surface there, but there's so much more to talk to him about. Um, the tank, the rainbow thing, we didn't even get started on. So I'm excited to talk to him about that for the next one. And it's really nice to get uh, his insight into, into some of these things. Yeah, this was just foreplay. The good stuff's coming. I think that interview um, is really, you know, the kind of territory people can expect from this podcast going forward. You know, we got into it. We got quite deep. And hopefully we'll um, get even deeper with Matt. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. And we should say uh, that that will be in two weeks. Uh, What we're trying to do here is uh, this is going to be a biweekly thing, but we don't want to step on anybody else's toes. So what we're going to try and do is release our thing in between uh, the Plastic Posse guys and the On the Bench guys. And so today is uh, Tuesday, June 15th. We're going to try and release this uh, on Friday of this week. If they're already listening to it, that would be a bit late. That was a dumb thing to say. And yeah, so we'll just keep that in there. Bloopers, right? Yeah. Anyway, Chris is right. Look, ignore me. Today is fucking Friday, all right? It's Friday, June whatever, and we're releasing today because the uh, On the Bench guys came out last Saturday, I believe. And the Plastic Posse guys will be due for a new one next Wednesday. So we're going to try and slide right in there to not step on anybody's toes and give you guys plenty of time to absorb all the great content. Good enough, boss? (laughs) Yeah, it'll do. Anyway, um, what else do we have? All right, well, there's a couple of of subjects I'd like to get into. We're pretty short on this time, so maybe we'll save those for next time. Thanks for listening to uh, the first episode of the Sprue Cutters Union. You can contact us at spruecuttersunion at gmail.com. And uh, please send us your comments. If, if they're entertaining and you're mad enough, we may read it on, on, on the podcast. Right on. Tracy, anything else for the crowd? Until next time, don't touch that dial. <laughs>